Luke chapter 10, and we're going to go to verse 25. Continuing the journey in Luke, which is going to go on for some time. And this is, this is a story you might have heard before. Um, let me just read one verse to start, and then I'll read the, the rest as we go through and just as we, as we process it. So Luke chapter 10, and we're starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this passage contains what's known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Probably the best known of all of Jesus' parables, right up there with the prodigal son, I would say if you were to walk up and down the street this afternoon and go into this bar and various other places and ask people, do you know the story of the Good Samaritan? A lot of people would. Whether they're churched or not, they still would be familiar with the story. And it's really difficult. I said this to the girls last night when we were driving home. It's actually really difficult to preach something that is so familiar and so well known. The, the term Samaritan has come to represent anyone who helps other people. That's definitely not what it meant in the first century in the, in the ears of Jesus' first hearers. The term pass by on the other side has come to mean something that we do when we want to distance ourselves from people that we don't want to help. And I would just ask you in your hearts this morning, as we, as we go to this most familiar passage of Scripture for, for many of us, you're probably not going to learn anything new. But we're not here to learn things that are new. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. We're here to hear God. And maybe in something that is really, really familiar, you will just hear once again the Spirit of God stirring your heart in some particular way. So don't be switching off and thinking, ah, I already know all this. We all know it. This is not going to be an earth-shattering new discovery, but hopefully it will be an earth-shattering even experience of hearing God. There's a man in this story as well who knows God's word really well. This expert in the law that's, that's mentioned, he knows the word of God and he knows it better than all of us put together. All right, so let's, let's be aware of the dangerous attitude of thinking that we know. This parable is only in Luke and, and this parable highlights some of Luke's priorities that you see over and over again. If you read Luke or work your way through it at high speed, which we're definitely not doing, you, you see some repeated themes coming up. One of them is that the gospel is for everybody. And you get that right from the start. The first chapters of Luke, I'd love to go back and do them again. The first chapters of Luke show that that the gospel is for everybody. We've got men and women in really prominent roles in those early chapters. Elizabeth and Mary, prominent female characters. It's not a gender specific thing. It's for Jews and Gentiles. We read in Zechariah's song in Luke 1 about, about how this Messiah would be a light for the Gentiles, a light for those who were in darkness. And it's for all members of society. We know that because shepherds came. Shepherds were the, one who had it, or the ones who had it revealed to them and who came to visit the child Jesus. 
So, so Luke emphasizes that the gospel is for all, and he mentions Samaritans quite a lot. He mentions them back in chapter 9, where Jesus rebukes the disciples because they wanted to call down fire on a bunch of Samaritans who did not welcome them in their village. And Jesus says, no, that's not how we do things. And in Luke chapter 17, he, he mentions Samaritans again, and he emphasizes the fact that the one leper who returned and gave thanks whenever 10 of them were healed was a Samaritan. Luke pops in that little detail. And it's almost as if Luke is setting us up, as he mentions Samaritans several times, he's setting us up for his second book, which is the book of Acts, Luke volume 2. And in chapter 8, the gospel goes to the Samaritans. And it's like he's preparing his readers. You're going to have your world rocked by where this good news is going. So that's one of the priorities that Luke has that we see in this story. The gospel is for every culture, every, every person. We also have a thing that, that scholars sometimes call the ethical triangle. And to, that's basically what they mean by that. Down at the bottom left is me, us, you. Okay, how we relate to God must be reflected in how we relate to others. That's what we mean by the ethical triangle. It would be really nice to call it the love triangle, but we can't do that. All right. It, it is about how our love for God affects our love for others. You see that coming up repeatedly in Luke and you see it coming up particularly here. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4, as he puts forth his ministry and why he's come, he then spends half the chapter healing people, <coughs> casting out demons, doing miracles, showing compassion and love and care to those who are in need. He says in, in John, John picks this up as well, and, and Jesus says in John that by this shall men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. How will people know that we're genuine followers of Jesus, lovers of God, by loving one another? And in Paul's letters, some of his letters begin with this sort of subtly woven into his, his introduction. For example, Colossians 1.4, Paul thanks God because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. That connection between our faith, our relationship with God and the love that we have for others. So that's, that's what we mean by the ethical triangle. And then the last thing that you'll see in this story that's a theme throughout Luke is that Jesus and Luke respect the history of Israel. Again, I didn't see this the first time going through, but as I went through Luke again at Christmas, I saw over and over again the fact that, that Luke is very careful to present the Jesus movement, the Christian movement, as not being a renegade movement, but as being a movement that is deeply, deeply rooted in the history of Israel and in the Jews. So, for example, in the early chapters of Luke, we meet Elizabeth and Zechariah, we meet Mary and Joseph, we meet Anna and we meet Simeon. And Luke is emphatic that these were upright people, devout people. Jewish people who sought God, who loved God, who did everything as the law required. Because he wants to repeatedly rebuke or rebuff those who would say that this is just some renegade revolution. It is not. So you're going to see all those things as we work through our story. First verse is, is verse 25. And this guy comes. He's a lawyer. 
Some Bibles will say a lawyer. This translation says maybe more helpfully he's an expert in the law because a lawyer, we think someone who like goes to court and does stuff like that. It's nothing to do with this. This means he was a, he was a scribe. This phrase is otherwise translated scribe. The word scribe, if you've never thought about it, comes from the same as the word scripture. Uh, and a scribe was a guy who would write out the scriptures, study them, teach them. This is what this guy was. He was a theologian. A scholar, somebody who knew the word of God and a lot of his friends would have been Pharisees, religious people. And his motives are wrong because right from the moment that he's introduced, Luke tells us he's trying to test Jesus. He is not sincere in his motives coming to Jesus. He wants to trip him up, trick him, test him, cause him to say something wrong in front of a crowd of people. And it's not the first time in Luke that we have seen Jesus being tested. In Luke chapter 4, he goes into the wilderness, full of the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. And while he's there for 40 days, he is tested by the devil. So Jesus is used to being tested by people. And the question that the, the scribe or the expert in the law asks shows how deeply religion has got a hold of his heart. Because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that is a contradiction. What must I do to inherit? You don't do anything to inherit. <laughs> An inheritance comes as a gift as a result of a relationship. You don't do anything. <laughs> but this guy, this, this is like, this is religion in general. Religion always wants to do. And one of the signs that religion has got a hold of somebody's heart or that religion has got a hold of a church community is that everybody is burnt out from doing. <laughs> from doing. And this guy wants to know, what do, I, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds. He asks Jesus a question and Jesus just bang, bang, shoots straight back with two questions. He, Jesus, he does this all the time in the Gospels. He loves to question people. He is a teacher and he is a master teacher. And one of the things that every teacher does in any context is ask questions that try to get people to think to provoke a response and Jesus comes straight back at the guy with two questions what is written in the law this expert in the law and Jesus is probably a little bit sarcastic here you know when you know so much about the law what does the law say and how do you read it that is a common question that rabbis would have asked those who they were teaching and again, we see that theme that I mentioned earlier. Jesus is going to be very, very careful to respect the law. He's not going to just chuck it out and say, hey, that's a, that's a pile of rubbish. He's going to respect the law. The law comes to its fulfillment and its completion in him. But he is going to point this guy back to the law, to the word of God, and ask him, what does it say there? And the response of the, of the guy is, is to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's from Deuteronomy 6. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19. And the scribe says that on this occasion in Luke, in Matthew 22, Jesus says those two things as being the great 
commandment and the second is like unto it. Jesus puts that forth and, and that ultimately, you know, in very simple terms, that is the meaning of life. <laughs> you know, a question that people wrestle over and, and guys with big long beards talk about at length. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of human existence? That's it. We're done. <laughs> okay. The purpose is love God and love others. That'll keep you busy for 70 or 80 or 90 years or whatever we get. Love God and love your neighbor. And we sometimes get bogged down in fine details. I believe God's in the fine details. I believe you should pray about jobs and I believe you should pray about relationships and I believe you should pray about where you would buy a house, where you would live, where you would settle, that God's in all of those fine details. But we sometimes get lost in the fine details and I've, and I've said this to you before. I, I think when, you know, we might get caught up with where should I live and I think God would say, you live wherever you want, but love me and love others when you're there. What job should I get? You get whatever job you want, but love God and love others when you're there. You know, what, what should I study? If I'm going to university or I'm picking subjects, what should I study? Study whatever you want, whatever you like, but love God and love others while you're there, while you're doing it. You know, God gives us an amazing amount of freedom. It's beautiful. He, he calls us to love him and to love other people. But in the context in which we do that, sometimes it'll be utterly clear, I want you here and I'm moving you here. And sometimes it'll be, you, you, can, you can go where you want. But this is how you live when you're there. Love me and love others. And I wonder how we're doing on this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Four things. I don't know if Jesus intends us to break them down and analyze them or whether he's just being emphatic when he says this or when the scribe says this and Jesus approves it or when Jesus says it himself in Matthew, whether he's just being emphatic and saying, love God with every fiber of your being. Everything that you've got, love God. How are we doing? You know, we say we do, but do our practices, our lives, one, as one, I think it was an Archbishop of, of Canterbury, and I can't remember his name, and I can't remember the exact quote, but basically the, the gist of it was this. What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? What, what just automatically occupies your mind and your heart? What do you find yourself turning over as you're going about your day, as you're driving, as you're walking, as you're working, quiet moments? What, what is it that just comes in and occupies your mind? Is it God? Is the Holy Spirit keeping you in constant communion with him, praying without ceasing? Do we love him with white hot intensity? Because we're called to. We're called to, but we fill our hearts and we fill our minds with other things so that there's no room for God. We spend our strength and our energy on other things. Other things fill our hearts. How are we doing on this? Because this is probably what I'm hearing in this passage or one of the things that I'm hearing for me personally is just God said, come on, let's get that white hot, ridiculous love 
burning again in your heart. Some of our minds, we just don't have the capacity to think about God because our minds are bombarded with other things. The, the life as we know it, culture that we live in, media and entertainment, just blasts us and, and trains our brains over a, over a period of time to not be able to actually ponder anything of value for a long period of time because we're just blasted by 30-second snippets of this and that and the other thing. Movies aren't popular anymore because TV shows are shorter. <laughs> They're less demand. TV shows aren't as popular anymore because little short clips on YouTube and TikTok become more popular. It's just basically shortening and shortening and shortening the attention span. Even as you're on a website, maybe reading something and you're, you're on a page for a few minutes, down the side of the page, there's just constant feed. There's a name for it. I don't know what it is, but there's just this infinite feed of changing advertising, bombarding the mind so that the mind gets trained to be unable to actually devote itself to thinking about something weighty for any period of time. How are we doing with this love for God? And love your neighbor as yourself. This, this, there are not two commands there, there's one. Right? It's not like you need to go and love yourself better. We're all really good at that. Okay? We're born good at that. Uh, the, what, what, what Jesus is saying, what God's word is saying is that we need to love others and I, I don't like the word neighbor because it just makes you think of whoever's on the other side of you, <laughs> on the other side of your fence at each side. But it's a lot more than that, obviously. It is to love other people and look after them the way you look after yourself. Basic needs, food and clothing and comfort and friendship and community and things like that. To provide that for other people. Here is an example then of that ethical triangle mentioned earlier. How love for God then must work itself out in love for others. And Jesus commends the guy when he replies and says, Well done, good answer. Um, do this and you will live. You will inherit eternal life. All the best. And he should have gone away. <laughs> and he didn't. He had to ask another question. Couldn't stop. And again, the motive is wrong. He initially wanted to test Jesus in verse 25. Now in verse 29, he wants to justify himself. He knows he needs to love his neighbor, but he approaches Jesus and he approaches God's word in a way that is looking for justification of his behavior. Now we do that. We do certain things and we love it when we find a half a verse buried somewhere that justifies the things that we do. And he wants to come to God's word and he wants God's word to, to vindicate his life. And what he's trying to do when he says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? He wants a limit. So let's say, for example, there are 10 people standing outside. This guy wants to go to Jesus and find out who are the two people that he should care for. Where, where's the line, Jesus? Where's the boundary where I can care for a certain number and then the rest I can discard? That's the heart he has as he comes to Jesus. When he wants to know who his neighbor is, he wants to know where is the limit. Surely you can't expect me to show love or to be loving towards everybody. And what he gets from Jesus, he asks this question, who is my neighbor? And he gets something he didn't expect. He gets a story. And Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. 
Now, Jesus is a master storyteller. And this is one of the greatest short stories ever told. You know that by the fact that a huge proportion of the planet are probably aware of this story in one way or another. As you go from Jerusalem to Jericho, there is a drop of about three and a half thousand feet. You're going down. <laughs> and just for those of you who use sleeve burna as a point of reference for everything in life that is painful, that's like going down burna from the top down to the style about 17 times. You know that steep bit that Mike ran down? That bit there, okay? That, that is, that is our, our drop from Jerusalem to Jericho. But this road is about 17 miles long. So it's more gradual. But it's a long road. There's lots of caves. There's lots of big rocks. There's lots of places to hide. And if you're traveling on that road alone, you are very, very vulnerable to robbers who would have hid there. And what happens to this guy is he gets attacked and he's left half dead. And if you're left half dead, that means it looks like you're dead. Okay. For anyone passing by, you know, it does, it does look like you're, you're as good as dead. And just a little note here on how to read parables. I've, I've heard a couple of interpretations of this parable, which started off way back maybe with St. Augustine, who was a good spud. But he, he did a thing called allegorizing, allegorizing. You know, he made an allegory out of the parable where every tiny detail means something. And it is widely agreed through scholars in, in, the, in recent centuries that that is not how you read parables. A parable has one or two big hitting points and the rest of it is part of the story. So the fact that the, the Samaritan a wee bit later will give the innkeeper two coins means nothing other than the fact that he sacrificially showed love for the man by giving of his own money. All of those fine details you can get bogged down in. People will say that going down from Jerusalem to Jericho is the fall of man. You know, Adam falling from Eden, going into sin. And, and, and they will take every single detail and, and put something on it that Jesus, I don't believe, ever intended. Jesus told the parable not to give a story of salvation. He told the parable to answer the question, who is my neighbor? So don't push the thing too far or you just get bogged down in details that I don't think Jesus ever intended. So along comes a priest, religious man, who was going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, another person who would have worked around the temple, he came to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. A priest would have served a two-week shift in the temple. Maybe lived in Jericho, traveled up this road 17 miles, did his two-week shift in the temple, and then traveled down again. Now, the priest and the Levite have got a bad rap in, in terms of, of this parable over the years. And they had good reason for not going near this man. Now, they should have. They, they did fail to show God's love, but they had plenty of reasons to not go over to the man. The man in the ditch might not have been a Jew. They didn't know because he had no clothes on and he was unconscious, so he wouldn't have been able to speak. They wouldn't have seen his, his outfit or his language, heard his language, and therefore they did not know whether he is a Jew or not. And they were of the opinion that we only help Jews. Also, the robbers may still have been around. If you were on a completely isolated road somewhere, let's say you're driving late at night and you saw a car over at the side of the road with the hazard lights on and maybe somebody sitting looking like they're in, a, in distress, part of you would think I'd like to help and part of you would probably think this could be a setup. 
there could be half a dozen guys behind the hedge who are about to give me a hiding and take my car. So, so they, they could well have thought the robbers might still be about, I don't want to get involved and risk getting hurt. And also, they, if the guy was half dead, then he wasn't moving and they could have contracted what was called corpse impurity. If the priest had gone over and touched this guy and he had turned out to be dead, that meant the priest was unclean. He would have to then turn around, walk all the way back to Jerusalem, buy a cow somewhere to offer as a sacrifice for his uncleanness, wait for a priest to come and render him clean, and then head back home again, and he would have lost a lot of money and a lot of time. So these guys had good reason for not getting involved. And although it's not the main point of the parable, you've got to bear in mind a religious guy has come to Jesus and asked him who his neighbor is. And Jesus has started the parable with two religious guys who had excuses for not helping somebody in need. He could have picked anybody. He picked a priest and a Levite. He picked religious people who knew the word of God and knew the law of God, but their concern about personal purity and safety meant they did not show the love of God to this person who was in need. It's very easy to do that in life. Go through the motions. Go to church. Go to the prayer meeting, read your Bible, listen to your worship music, generally be a good spud, but not give a monkeys about the half-dead people that are strewn up and down the road of life and never do anything for them. That's these two religious men. Then, a Samaritan. Now, Anybody listening to this, we've heard this so many times. The people who heard this for the first time, the last word they were expecting to hear was Samaritan. Okay, just they were expecting, you know, so we've had a priest, we've had a Levite, and they're just expecting Jesus to say, a regular garden variety Jew came along and crossed the boundaries of race and culture and helped the guy in the ditch. That's what they're expecting. For Jesus to put a Samaritan as the hero was actually devastating for them. And we miss it because we think of Samaritan now as this nice word. We we miss how devastating this was. We've heard the story so many times. So the Samaritan comes, sees the man, takes pity on him, goes to him, bandages his wounds, pours on oil and wine, put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. Next day, he took out two coins, two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. And we've heard this in Sunday school and in school and in lots of other contexts. We've heard the story played out maybe with, with uh, fans of opposing football teams. You've, you've heard that one, I'm sure, in, somewhere in the journey of you know, a fan of this team was walking down the road and a fan of that team is lying, he's been beaten up and he goes and helps him. And, and that's a way that it's used sometimes. Or in Northern Ireland, of course, we'll have the Protestant Catholic thing um, about you know, one finds another one lying in the ditch and helps them out. And I don't think those quite get the intensity of it for us here. Because I don't think any of us really care that much about football that we hate somebody else who supports a different team. I don't think we we like our football, but I don't think we have a problem with that. And I don't think there's anybody here who hates someone who, who is of the opposite or of an opposite 
background in terms of Protestantism or Catholicism. I don't think, although I'm shocked at how deep that still runs in society. I really am. I remember asking a, a guy one day, I'll not say what context it was in. Uh, none of you know this person. And I remember asking him, if a guy walked in here uh, and he had a name badge on and his name was like an Irish name, would you assume he was a bad person? And the fellow just said to me, yeah, I would. <laughs> okay, we still have trouble with this. Um, but, but for us who don't have trouble with sectarianism in this community and we don't have trouble with hating other football fans or whatever, how, how, how do we pitch this? Who could we put in the place of the Samaritan that would just cause a wee, you know, just a wee twitch, a wee bristle? I remember listening to Rick Watts. I couldn't find it, couldn't find the audio of it. But he told a story one time. He got up at the start of church uh, to, to, to bring his message. And he didn't say to them, I'm going to give you an illustration here. He just said, you know, I was on my way over to church this morning. I had a bit of time in my hands and I stopped at Starbucks or wherever. And, and he, he just painted it all like it was a regular story. And that he saw, he witnessed somebody getting into a fight or getting mugged or robbed. And uh, that these Christian, this Christian youth group were there in Starbucks at the same time. And they didn't go and help out. And he told this whole story. And it sounded like it was absolute fact that this is what had happened. And then he said, he said, I noticed this gay couple on the other side of the restaurant. And they went out and helped the guy that was lying in the street. And he said the ones in the congregation were raging at him. Because he had, he had done what Jesus did. He had hit them right in the gut with their prejudice against people. And for, for Jews in the first century to do that, you make a Samaritan the hero of the story. Because they hated Samaritans. In fact, part of their daily prayers, I pray every morning for the kids as we're driving up there just past the roundabout and we're doing the first drop off at Tandrigi Junior High School. I pray the same prayer every morning. Father, thank you for a new day. Um, please keep your good hand upon us today. Bless the kids and their work and in their friendships. Amen. And then toss Samuel out the door. <laughs> if I was a Jew, I would add on to that daily prayer Lord, do not allow any Samaritans to be saved. That's what they did, literally. That's not me emphasizing. That's what they did. Do not allow any Samaritans to be part of the resurrection. That was part of the Jewish daily prayer. They hated them. And I think for, for us to actually, and I know I'm poking here, and, and don't, don't, be, don't, don't be worried. I am profoundly biblical in my views of gender and sexuality. <laughs> profoundly. Okay. But I think if Jesus was telling this story today in our context, that's where he would go because that would just cause a wee, oh, don't like that. <laughs> and that's what the Jews would have, that's their response when they hear Samaritan. This is where the term punchline comes from. <laughs> you tell a joke, you tell the punchline. Punchline is the line that punches you in the gut. And as they're listening to the story and they hear the word Samaritan, it's just like, oh, you know. You can't do that. The punchline. The priest and the Levite, they get, they get two verbs. Both of them. You go back to verse 31. Priest happened to be going down the same road. He saw, he passed by. And the Levite, it's the same thing. The Levite saw and he passed by. The Samaritan gets loads of verbs. Saw, took pity, went, bandaged, poured, put, brought, took care of, gave, returned, reimbursed. 
Loads of stuff that he did. And you need to remember something as well, because it's very easy to say the priest and the Levite were, were held by the law of Moses, and therefore they had excuses to see and pass by. Samaritans held to the law of Moses as well. One of the differences between Samaritans and Jews was that Samaritans did not believe any of the Hebrew scriptures were actually inspired by God except the five books of Moses. So the Samaritan could equally have said, I am held by what's written in the, in the law and therefore I cannot go near this man. But he chose not to. And the difference, they all see the man, but the Samaritan, if we get verse 33 right, it says in my Bible that he took pity on him. That is not good. He had compassion on him. The word in Greek is this great word, splanchnon, from which we get the word spleen. And it's to do with just feeling something right inside you that causes you to act. Pity sees someone in need and says, oh, isn't that awful? Poor guy. Compassion sees someone in need and does something about it. Pity is useless. Compassion is Jesus. Compassion in the Old Testament, it is God about whom compassion is mentioned more than anyone else. And the same in the New Testament about Jesus. In Latin, com passio means with suffer. To have compassion is to suffer with someone. It is to get involved in their sufferings. It's not to say, oh, poor you, and then go home and put your feet up. Compassion. And if the world is to see the character of God, then the church needs to be a compassionate people to all, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, background, wealth, blah, 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 whatever it may be that we would like, like the, the guy who's my neighbor, where can I draw the line, Jesus, and say, those people are beyond my responsibility to love. Where can I draw that line? He says, you can't, there is no line. There is no line. The church must show compassion for the Samaritan here. And, and, and again, the whole thing is flipped. They would have expected a Jew passing by, a Samaritan lying half dead, and didn't the good Jew do well to cross the boundary and, and deal with the Samaritan? And by flipping it, Jesus just hammers them that the Samaritan is the hero. And for the Samaritan, he is, at no point in this story do we see, you know, as the guy's on the donkey and they're heading to the inn and the guy sort of comes around and wakens up a wee bit, at no point does he say, here, mate, where are you from? What, what, what's your racial background? You know, any other personal question? What team do you support? You know, are you a prod? Are you, you know, he doesn't ask any questions at any point. Because for the Samaritan, the identity of the man is he's a human being made in the image of God. And therefore, he deserves my love. That's it. That is the only thing. (laughs) All the other things are secondary. And the challenge that Jesus then brings, he says to the guy, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Couldn't even say the word Samaritan. That's how much they despised them. Wouldn't even say it. The one who had mercy on him, Jesus said, or Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Jesus flips the question and it's genius. 
The guy came in verse 29 and said, who is my neighbor? Where is the boundary? Who are the people, Jesus, and, and, and come on, who are the people for you? Who are the people for me that we just find it very hard to acknowledge the fact that they're even there? Eh? But they're made in the image of God, but we find it hard to love them. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally. We think what they do or how they live means they're beyond the remit and the call to, to show love. That's what the guy wanted. He wanted a boundary. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus didn't answer his question. <laughs> Jesus said, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor? Now, I hope you get this. So I'm going to just say it again. The guy asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus didn't answer him. Jesus said, this is what it looks like to be a neighbor. And if you know what it looks like to be a neighbor, as exhibited by this Samaritan, if you know what it looks like to be a neighbor, then you don't need to ask the first question. It's irrelevant. Do you understand me? If you know, Jesus told the story to explain what a neighbor was, not to explain where the boundary of your love goes to. Because if you know what a neighbor is, you then don't need to ask who do I need to show love to? Who is my neighbor? The difference between the two religious leaders and the Samaritan was in the heart. It was compassion. Compassion caused him to look upon the person differently. You read 1 John and you get this all over the place about how we cannot say we love God and then hate others. We do not understand salvation and we do not understand the cross and we do not understand the grace of God if we want to put a boundary line as to who we can reach out to and show love and grace and mercy to. And two questions just to finish because there's been lots of questions in this short passage. The first one is, where are we in this story? This is something people do a lot with parables and I think it's good to read a parable and think, where am I? And if you're anything like me, <clears throat> you probably read it and you look at the priest and you think, yeah, maybe I'm sometimes like the priest. And you look at the Levite and you think, yeah, I guess maybe I'm sometimes like the Levite. And you look at the Samaritan and you think, maybe, you know, the odd time, not often enough, but maybe sometimes, yes, I'm, I'm like the Samaritan, I'm, I'm getting there. And, and I think we, we miss the fact that I'm the guy in the ditch. <laughs> I'm the guy who's half dead. And Jesus is the one who had every reason to pass by. Every reason to say, what you have done puts you beyond my love and my compassion. And I'm going to leave you in the ditch. Your choices and your sin and the way you've, you've lived has got you into that ditch. And you can just stay there. And I remember re reading that for the first time in a book by Mark Buchanan about maybe 10 or 12 years ago. And I, can still, I, can, I was looking at it again the other day. I see the word on the page clearly in italics. I am the guy in the ditch. <laughs> I'm the guy in the ditch. And until I have felt the compassion and the love and the grace of Jesus, until I have been rescued from my half dead or completely dead in sin state, I cannot then neighbor others. I can't love others 
until I'm secure in the love of the Father. It's people who are not secure in God's love, who do not ponder it, who are not amazed by it, who, who, who make it a small thing and take it for granted. They won't love anyone else. They still feel the need to protect themselves from being hurt or from giving away money and losing out or from giving away time to someone who wastes it on you or whatever. They're concerned about those things. Those who are secure in the love of God don't care about those things. Once you're secure in his love, you can then pour out and love others. So the question is, where, where are you in this story? So maybe you are you know, a bit like the priest sometimes, maybe you are a bit like the Samaritan sometimes, but I can tell you every one of us was the guy in the ditch. And maybe some might still be the guy in the ditch. And to whom are we showing compassion? Jesus... I don't think, you know, compassion does not, Jesus was not responding to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is not saying, if, you, if you're compassionate enough, you will inherit eternal life. That's not the question he's answering or responding to. The question he was responding to was about being a neighbor. And showing this compassion is about, is about fruit. It's about the fact that we are so loved by God and we've responded to God, and therefore there's this overflow of compassion and love in our own hearts towards others. It's not that we merit anything by being compassionate. It's the fact that we are compassionate shows that we have genuinely encountered the love and the salvation of God. And a, and a wee point I want to leave you with is that back in verse, yeah, verse 33, the Samaritan came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And the, the point is, you've got to come near in order to see. You've got to come near in order to see. You can't see from a distance. Do you understand? You, you have to be close to people. And again, and this is something that we've been saying a lot this, this last few weeks and months and thinking about on Tuesday nights and we'll also hopefully you know, be listening to God tonight on, on this level. How do we come near and start to see those half-dead people? Because we can't see them and we can't have compassion on them and we can't see them restored if we are distant. <laughs> there has to be proximity. There has to be nearness in order for compassion to be exercised. In order to see a person, we've got to come near, we've got to get a closer look, we've got to be in society and in community. An intentional choice to go and share the same space as those who are half dead in order to show compassion. Let me finish with by reading 1 John 3 and then we will worship again. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity, no compassion on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. If we were to be asked 
for exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, evidence of how we are a compassionate people, what would we say? We could say we've got compassionate hearts and we're really concerned for the world around us, for the half dead on the side of the road. But if somebody just pushed it for and said, no, no, I want to see evidence. I want to see it. Tell me, how have you shown compassion? How, you know, talking as a church, you don't want anybody getting all guilty here as individuals, us as a community, all right? How are you showing, because this is such a characteristic of Jesus over and over and over again to the point that you almost ignore the word because you see it that much. Jesus had compassion on him. Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. If we're going to reflect his character and someone says, right, I want to challenge you on that. Who are you showing compassion to? What would we say? Have we come near enough to see or are we sitting at a distance? Are we religious? We know lots of truth. We know all the right stuff. We're going to answer questions and all, but there's no actual overflow. When Jesus gave that great commandment, love God and love others, it wasn't, you know, one or the other, lean this way or lean that way. It was both. They are inseparable. And I think we're strong in this church on one of them. I think we love God. I think we love his word and his truth. And, we, and I think we love his people. But I, th- I would love to see more of that directed out to the half dead at the side of the road. And I believe that's what, what the Holy Spirit is stirring with us or in us as a church at the minute. Let's pray.